here we are with Tony Fletcher, originally from South East London, currently in New York, a producer of a, a fanzine in the 70s and the 80s called Jamming, which led to a record label of the same name. You also played in a, a band and uh, you've written uh, a, a number of biographies over the years and uh, one novel, Tony Fletcher. Nice to be on here, Al. Thank you. Nice, nice to meet you. I mean, we do share a mutual friend who uh, features quite heavily in your, your, your Man About Town book. Boy, boy about town, but that's boy, okay. Boy about town, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, uh, Mr. John Matthews. Yeah. Right, I, suppose, I suppose where where we start is really generally at the beginning. So, you know, you, you're, you're from South East London. Yeah, I was actually born in Yorkshire, but my family moved down when I was two years old. So I was raised in South London. Yeah. Norwood. Uh, sort of, it was West Dulwich bordering on Norwood area. And I lived there till I was 17. And then my mother moved up to Crystal Palace with me. And it's kind of like, the, it was football first, wasn't it? It's been a yeah. few years since I've read the book, but I, yeah. I seem to remember football being the, the, the first thing, your first yeah. love. Well, football, football is absolutely right there. It's funny, I can see a copy behind you. I'm quite flattered. Yeah. It's, it's behind you on the shelf. You, you tend to recognize your own books, uh, <laughs> book spines, particularly when they're lurid, new wave pink. Um, yeah, it was football and music. I mean, I, at, at the age of seven or eight, both suddenly kicked in. I, was, um, I, I did become a massive Crystal Palace fan. That maybe that had about six months on me starting to buy records and... It was very much what everybody of our generation experienced. It was top of the pops on a Thursday and this sense of you couldn't afford to miss it. And you back then you never had quite any idea who was going to be on it, except if you knew what the charts were, you'd know that the number one song would be on it and you just never know what would surprise you. And I just fell, you know, I fell hook, like, hook, line and sinker for both things. I just became a, an avid Crystal Palace fan, but I was also just obsessed with pop music and indeed the the minutiae of pop music. From the very beginning, I was the kind of person who looked at a record label and went, oh, so those are the people who write the songs and their names are showing up, you know, Chin and Chapman are showing up on different records I'm buying. So that's interesting. You know, just like totally, totally geeking out uh, from the beginning. Because I, I remember, I think it was at 77 or 78, and uh, I bought myself a Crystal Palace strip because it was, I think it was a time of when uh, uh, American football or soccer was coming to, uh, to uh, was being uh, promoted quite heavily. And yep. the, the, the Palace strip with the stripes going across was quite yeah. a, quite a colourful strip or quite an interesting strip. The sash, that famous sash, it was, it, it really was famous. I think we were the first club to, uh, to do something like that and to this day you can it's one of the only uh, shirts I haven't thrown out I don't actually buy football shirts but uh, as a kid I did and it's one of only two I haven't thrown out because it's just so classic that sash I love it got to credit Malcolm Allison for a lot of that he uh, he took the club down a yeah yeah it, it, uh, on his record, it says he took the club down two divisions, but I mean, he got handed the managership of four games before the end of a season when we were going down anyway. And he turned it, he turned it around by the following Christmas, which was too late for us to avoid going down another. But we had, uh, he completely turned Crystal Palace around. They turned from being a very old fashioned club that, you know, just had no. Yeah, no real buzz to it, to being a super fashionable club that had a lot of excitement to it. It was, it was so much fun to be around. I think he was, he was Malcolm Allison was a, quite a revolution to, to football when he was at Manchester City as a coach. He, I support Middlesbrough, so yeah. he, he was at Middlesbrough in the early 80s and he joined probably at the time when we were going downhill where uh, Charles Amer, the chairman, was started selling all the players and 
it, it just wasn't the right time for him to be at, at Middlesbrough Football Club. I don't think anybody could have done anything at the club at that point. Right, right. So when did, when did, when did he go to your first match? Uh, it was June or July 71. It was the Anglo-Italian Cup. And probably <laughs> to this day, about I think it might actually be the only time I've seen Palace play quality European opposition. We've never actually qualified for Europe per se. Um, so it was Palace into Milan. And uh, I remember the excitement of it very, very, very well. Um, I had no idea the game was on until I was, I was at primary school that day. And you know how little kids are like, I'm going to my, my dad's taking me to this match tonight. Are you going? Everybody's going. And I kind of ran home and begged my mum to take me. And she was a wonderful mum. And she, she did. And I think she got hooked as well. Um, yeah, I remember that. I remember it was one, a one-all game. And then I went to a couple more matches at the start of the next season. Um, uh, and we went to Chelsea a couple of times. And I just realized you support your local club. It's just so much easier. If, if I yeah. start just supporting Palace, I can go to 50% of the games, you know, at home. And then hopefully a few of them away. So, yeah, just got um, totally hooked. And uh, which arm is it on? Hang on. It's the, the mirror thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this is, me, this is me showing in my tattoo. I love it. I love it. It's me for life, Palace. So you, you kind of... I'm, when I was a kid, which I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a bit younger than you, but I never expected Middlesbrough to get into a cup final. I never expected Middlesbrough to win a cup final. And I never expected Middlesbrough to qualify for Europe, let alone get to a UEFA cup final. So mm -hmm. for me, I've, I've over exceeded all my expectations of supporting my team, you know. Uh, I, I suppose quite similar for, for you in that your expectations are quite low and you support them for exactly the reasons that you said. Yeah, I, I, you absolutely do. And um, I, I have not had the joy of seeing Paris win a cup final. I, uh, and I don't think there's any if Data Systems Cup counts for much. Uh, you know, we've been in the FA Cup final twice against Man United twice, lost both times after taking the lead. Um, and thinking we were, we stood the chance of winning it. I, I, I have to say that, you know, Palace are not a small club now. We've been, we're going into our 10th year in the Premiership. That's the thing that I would never have believed. That back when we were a yo-yo club, if you'd said we were going to hold our own for 10 years in the greatest league in the world and be financially secure and a, a sort of happening, you know, popular, I don't like overusing the word, but a sort of hip club, that, that, you know, feels like it's got all its parts in order and, and it's run by people who are supporters of the club. Um, I, that part I would never have believed. So I, I look forward to the day we can win a cup. I look forward to the day we get to Europe. Um, but I, I am super proud of my club. And, and I've had some times where you weren't, one wasn't totally proud. And I know, it, it, you know I mean, we share a catchment area with Chelsea. Uh, our friend John Matthews being one of those uh, that sort of you know, crossed the river to support to support Chelsea, and they have had to wrestle for years with Roman Abramovich. You know what 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 was his deal? What was who was behind him? Well, now we know. And I've got I've, you know I do have some friends who are Chelsea fans that are very morally conflicted, or certainly were when when the shit went down earlier this year. And we don't have that, and that's a pleasure. And I'll I'll actually take not winning stuff for feeling very proud of the club, its community involvement. Um, you know, it's politics. It's just, it just as a general thing, I will take that because uh, there's so much in sport that's just purely about greed and business. And it's nice to know that that uh, that you can support a club that's still got its community at heart, even in the big leagues. I think even when I first started coming to London in the early '80s, I, I, I was staying with friends in South East London. And when when I moved to London '95, I moved to uh, Lewisham, and mm -hmm. uh, you can see how many good youth players are in South East London. So when when Palace have had a good team, it's been built on the youth policies that have brought good youth players through, and that that's that's where I can see all the teams in in the, or any football team from if they get the youth policy right and they can bring kids through, then you know you can see. Uh, a natural progression into the first team and then the, the standards pick up and hopefully you can start winning things. Yeah. There's some statistic out there that I can't remember, but it's, it's an incredibly high 
number, a percentage of Premier League English players who hail from Croydon. I mean, it's, it's so much more than you might think. It's not just Palace players. It's, it's, it's one in some kind of single digits hail from Croydon. So we have, we have the most amazing catchment area for players. And like I say, I mean, I'm supporting them from overseas. I do, COVID, uh, not counting COVID years, I get back and see a couple of games each year at the very, very least. And, uh, and I did do this past season, but uh, I'm looking forward to doing so again next season at some point. So the music thing, football first, let's say 71, yeah. uh, watching Top of the Pops. Yeah. Who... who Bearing in mind, I have read your book, but who who was your, the 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 first band that you went to see live? So the first band that I went to see live is is uh, off my own steam. I.e., my parent, my mum didn't take me to see somebody she wanted to see. Was uh, I'm I'm pretty damn proud of this one. It was Queen in 1975 um, when Bohemian Rhapsody took up residency at number one. Hammersmith Odeon. Uh, Backseat of the balcony. Uh, I bought a ticket. Funny enough, we're back to football. I bought a ticket off somebody at the palace who had a spare, and I realised why he might have wanted to sell it when I actually got into the Hammersmith Odeon and realised I was in the back row of the balcony, and I'm 11 years old and can't see a thing. But that's a pretty good first show. And uh, only only a few months later, I went to, to the uh, Who Put the Boot In at Charlton Athletic, and we're back to football yet again, which... <laughs> um, and, uh, I mean, that was a pretty extreme concert to be allowed to, if we call it a concert, big stadium event to be allowed to go to on my own. But we grew up differently in those days. Our parents just went, yeah, off you go, you know. Yeah. So, uh, I, I remember for the, for, the, for the Queen show, my mother actually took me up there. She didn't really want me going, but I'd already bought the ticket and because um, I just did. So she took me there, and then she went wandering off ham- around Hammersmith for a couple of hours and couldn't really find anything to do and came back and they let her in the stalls. So she got a better view of the concert than me. Um, and then the Who one at Charlton, I remember she dropped me off up there, but I had to find my own way home. And that was, that was pretty mental. As I get I was 12 years old and found my way back from Charlton, last bus from Trafalgar Square. <laughs> yeah, my, my, my first gig, we went as a family to see Hawkwind in 1979 That's when cool. I was 11. Which I suppose is a bit radical for a, a, a first band at that age, and I remember being a bit uncomfortable sitting with my mum and dad, thinking, "What, what am I doing here with them two yeah. uh, and uh, my two sisters?" And then the next band I went to see, which was 1980, was uh, the UK Subs at uh, an under 18 show okay. in uh, in in Middlesbrough, and uh, that then opens uh, the the gateway to try and see as many gigs as I could. So it. Obviously, you were then coming through to uh, to the, the the breaking of punk rock. When did you first experience punk or become aware of it? Uh, very good question, because there were these sort of inklings going around in how pe- some of the older kids were dressing at school. But they weren't really dressing punk. There was this big overlap with the soul boy thing. I mean, we always... Uh, retroactively, retrospectively, we always like to kind of divide our, our movements into these neat boxes and assume that they never touch something else. And, you know, it's easy to think of punk, you know, you mentioned the UK subs, it's easy, it's easy to think of punk as this just purely angry guitar thing and not realize it had this whole artsy in, initial involvement, movement. Uh, I think what... Uh, to, I, I specifically remember John Matthews coming into school the morning after the Bill Grundy incident with the Sex Pistols and talking about it. And I had no inkling because A, we didn't watch that, that ITV and B, I didn't see any morning papers. So I didn't know anything about this. So I got to school. Um, I, it took me a, a, a few months and, and, and the early issues of jamming might even suggest it took a couple of years for me to fully absorb what punk did because on one hand I was I was very quickly sold on uh, the jam but but the following summer summer of 77 and that's really when it kicked in for those of us my age like we knew in early 77 that we knew all about the the 
issues with the Sex Pistols. You know, we'd heard some records on the radio. Maybe somebody would loan somebody else a record. But we were all kind of conflicted. Um, I came from a, a classical musical family. So my, I was having to fight this initial thing of, well, it's not music with the fact that I love the Who, who were loud and punks of their day. And uh, particularly when the jam when I connected with the jam on their second single in the summer of 77, I was like, Oh, I get to have my own who this is, this is utterly perfect. But I still, it, I think for a lot of us, you know, there were kids at school who even at the age of 13, 14 were very much embedded in the hard rock camp and they never came over really to like, like thin Lizzie might've been the closest we all met. And then there were kids, um, who were sort of, you know, I, I'd almost call them the SWATs and they were, they remained very steadfastly into ABBA. And so we had this weird, like, triple divide around my class at school. But I think it was the summer of 77 for kids my age, and we were only 13. Uh, so much went on, was on top of the pops that summer. And God Save the Queen and the Jubilee. And, and uh, uh, we all came back. You know, my memory is us coming back at the end of August, early September, whatever it is, just raving about what had been on top of the pops. And that within it was funny within about two weeks i read the john savage article in sounds about fanzines and figured i wanted to do one i'd only bought a couple of singles by that point i may have only bought all around the world but i knew that there was something going on that was different and and i also have to say that i had i had gone on like a uh an, an uncommitted really kind of detour into hard rock so i was just like Up. You know, I'm just a little kid who's massively into all this fun glam stuff. And then it sort of stops. It gets really crappy and then it stops. And then there's nothing. And so a lot of us uh, who are into music, and I, again, can't count John among those people. It's like, well, what do we have? We, I guess we got Led Zeppelin. I guess we got Deep Purple. I guess, you know, this band Rush that people are talking about. I never really listened to rush but we we were going that way because we had nothing else so when punk came along we were just like that's what we wanted we didn't necessarily realize that punk was uh necessary but i think instinctively we might have known it because we had this great period of about three years of top of the pops being wonderful and then you were watching it, it was the bay city rollers and the wombles and the osmonds and you're sort of like hang on what happened to my favorite glamax and uh quickly enough punk happened and it's like all right we got what we we got what we needed here so the, you you said that the jam were the, the really the first band that you honed in on and from the, you, from the new wave generation yeah. yeah i was already a massive who fan yeah were, were they the, the 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 first band you, you saw live from that generation yeah they were uh december 77 i saw them at hammersmith odeon and i'd already pretty much hooked my uh if that's the right phrase, I hooked my mast or something like that onto the jam. Um, I'd already sort of made that call. And that was a ticket that I either saved up for. There's some combination of getting an album for Christmas and spending my own money on a concert ticket and went to see them at Hammersmith Odeon. And actually, it wasn't very good. It was the wrong venue for them in 1977. I was instinctively yeah. like, what are we doing with... And I'd been to Hammersmith Odeon for Queen. I'd actually been there to see Nazareth. That's another one of those bands. It's like... I was quite into the idea of the honest, hardworking rock band, the Nazareth and bad companies of this world, but they weren't, they were okay, but they actually weren't that special in, I mean, bad company left some good songs behind in Nazareth as well, but we needed punk. So yeah, it wasn't the right venue for the jam, but within another barely two months, I got to see them at the marquee. And then that was it. Everything made sense to me. Everything that I had I'd always read about the Who at the Marquee. I knew about that. I knew about the legend of their residency and going to the Marquee, seeing the jam, being in a sweaty club like that to see a big band. Everything clicked. What age were you then? Still 13. And so the Marquee, I, I should probably say, was the one club in London that let in young kids like oh. our age. And we, being my, the few of us at school that were going to gigs, I mean, it feels like a lot of us, but actually it was a lot of us. If you add in the girls' school, by, by, our, by the time we were 15, there were a lot of us going to gigs. But uh, I quickly realized, oh, we can get tickets for the marquee and they won't turn us away at the door. Now, now and then I would venture out to the Nashville and they wouldn't let me in. 
and other places, you know, the music machine I couldn't get in. So it was all about the marquee. So the, the, the shortly after, what, in 78, did you produce your first fanzine in so the, the city? First, yeah, the first issue actually came out Christmas 77. Right, and, okay. Um, and, and actually, if you don't mind, this is a good time for me to just sort of say you know, that we, we being a big collective, we put out a best of jamming book um sort of last christmas and it's still very much available and it's called the best of jamming and it allowed me to really revisit the entire history of the fanzine that turned into a magazine reconnect with a lot of contributors and for the very first time share some content from that first issue because it was awful it was yeah. awful but it was a, it was two 13 year old kids uh, myself and a friend called lawrence weaver who was the hard rock fan and he agreed to do it with me. And, you know, we just typed out a couple of reviews, a couple of histories and put it together, six pages of rubbish, sold it at school. And then I, 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 I just thought, well, this is so bad. I can't leave it there. I've got to do better. And uh, if nothing else, I've got to do better. Re realized, got told actually by Tom Robinson, who I was trying to get an interview with. He wrote and told me of another fanzine called In the City. So changed the name to Jamming. Largely really and truly because of the Bob Marley single jamming slash punky reggae party that was such a big hit in 77. But obviously, I mean, the jam's name was in there, but it, 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 I think if I'd known how people would associate it with the jam down the years and how big the jam would get, I would have found another name even at that point. But I didn't. The same way we, you never expected to see Middlesbrough in the cup final. And, you know, I, I never expected Palace to spend 10 years in the top flight. We, uh, the jam uh, when i changed its name to jamming and saw the jam at the marquee they were they were considered passe you know their second album had bombed and they were at the point of bruce fox and writing an a-side and you know the next single was a cover version and you know they were considered very lost so i called it jamming and i got a, i got a taste for it and by the summer of 78 i realized i wanted to take it out of being produced at school and make a real go of it and produce a proper proper music magazine slash fanzine and that's what i did and then because uh, was that when you uh, became associated was it either better badges or was it rough trade that did your printing it was better badges did the printing and that kicked in in 79 um and meeting jolly a jolly mcphee who ran yeah. better badges it's one of those fortuitous things but it i mean i it also wasn't. I literally knocked on his door. I went to his old, he was actually in Notting Hill Gate at the time. And I, I knew he put ads in magazines. And I was like, I just couldn't figure out how to pay printing bills. And I was having such a terrible time with it. I was close to giving up. And I went to, to ask him for an ad. And he said, well, I could do an ad. And, you know, this is cool. You can't see me. But I'm actually also buying a, um, a printer. And yeah, we got into a conversation and he did basically said, yeah, I could use jamming as a guinea pig and yeah, I'll charge you cost and print your fanzine. And then I'll know if I've, you know, I'll, I'll get my printing skills together to run my badges. And that saved jamming. Uh, yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't luck. I literally went to him to ask for an ad, but the conversation uh, went outwards from there. And yeah, he, um, you know, we had a relationship that went on for about three years uh, that, you know, Better Badges grew and Jamming grew. And that was a major connection. And you mentioned Rough Trade and Rough Trade was such an important outlet for fanzines and yeah. a great place to hang out as well. So yeah. Better Badges was ended up um, right around the corner from Rough Trade. So we could print the fanzines and I could literally have them in Rough Trade, you know, 10 minutes after they came off the printing press. It was amazing. I think the the, the 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 first one I got was probably from the Virgin Megastore in uh, in Edinburgh on Princess Street, probably 1980. Uh, and then I, I remember, must have been 82, in, I, I was in uh, staying with a friend in Perry Vale, Forest Hill, and uh, there was a copy of Jamming for sale in the WH Smith's there. So that, that, that was seemed to be a, a bit of a step up, certainly for circulation-wise. It was, but it was a long time getting there. And um, if it was definitely WH Smith's, then I don't think we got into Smith's until we went full color in 1983. 
September 1983, which was a massive, massive leap. Um, uh, probably a ridiculous leap, but we, you know, we did it all the same. Went to be in a bi-monthly, and uh, that's in a, in a way that following year is a great year for Jan. When we were doing the book, I was I was pretty impressed how on top of things we were. And although the layout could still be pretty embarrassing, and some of the co- the the copy was not it, it it wasn't great journalism, but the energy was still there, and we seemed to be able to find the bands and write about the bands as they were coming up and our politics was in the right place. And uh, uh, that was a hectic, but a pretty good year. So when you're going back to the beginning of jamming, how did you make a decision on which bands you wanted to uh, interview or write about? Uh, Early on, there were people that I really, really, really wanted to interview like Paul Weller and Pete Townsend. Um, But we were also sort of, anybody that would do an interview with us, when you sort of start out a fanzine, especially when you're a little kid, you're just like, oh, will you talk to us? All right, we'll write about you. Um, you know, my school friend, Jeff Carrigan, who I ended up uh, having the band with, I mean, I remember him coming in and saying, I, I like this band's sore throat and I can interview them. And I'd be like, all right, two pages in the next issue. I didn't, I'd never heard a note of them, really. Uh, and we, a different group of us, and Jeff may have been one of us, but there was four of us, I think, went to this... Uh, Cabaret Voltaire, Red Crayola, Prague Vec, Scritti Politi show at the Acclam Hall. And we didn't know anything about Scritti Politi, but we walked into the dressing room and did an interview with them and sort of actually had their first interview, I think. Uh, their friend Ian Penman may have written something about them for the enemy, but I mean, the interview is hilarious to read because it's like, okay, tell us about yourselves. We don't know anything. And I ended up having a really good long-term friendship with Scritti Politi as a result of that. So amazing things could come out of it. And then in it, so there was always a case of trying to track down certain bands you really wanted to interview. Like um, uh, I was really glad to get an interview with Bill Nelson, because when I'm talking about that, that gap between glam and punk rock, Bebop Deluxe was one of the only bands that filled that gap. And I did and still do admire Bill Nelson a lot yeah so that was a good one to get but otherwise you know it, it was sort of I'd go see a band and maybe if we liked them we'd ask to interview them and there were bands that we never got to interview that we should have done I remember we were meant to go and interview the undertones at the marquee and they had to cancel and the lurkers played instead and um, we just we interviewed the lurkers instead yeah we literally yeah. went oh well we were here to interview the undertones but maybe we can interview you and they went yeah go for it so, I mean, it's a weird, a weird combination. I think it's going back to your point you, you were saying about some of the, the best, my favourite interviews have been the ones where I don't know anything or where I'm going to go. I just start and then you go down an, an avenue. You know, the, the worst type of interview is if you've got somebody who'll just say two word answers mm-hmm, and you can't sure. get anything out of it. And I've had a few of them where you're like, oh, God, that's, I'm going to wind this one up pretty fast. But you, you kind of, Paul Weller was obviously quite, an important figure at the, the, the beginning. When, when did you first meet Paul? Uh, it would have been August 78 when I interviewed him um, in the RAK studios where he was working on his own that day on All Mod Cons. And I had written and asked for an interview, sent the school fanzines, and he wrote back and said, sure, come on up to RAK and we'll, we'll do an interview, which I really, really appreciated. Um, I'm very aware that that over the years, for a lot of people, there's been this. Uh, they've they've tended to associate uh, a lot with Weller and the Jam, and I get that because I, as you mentioned at the start, I did end up running a record label with him. <clears throat> he did produce my band's first single, and my band did go on the Jam's last tour, and we were their final ever support band which is something we will always you know that's never going to change we will always be their final support band because they're not reforming and um uh and so i get all of that but i have to say in in like the year from when i first interviewed weller to when i went back and interviewed the jam you know we like the fanzine went off and you you know whether it was scritti politi whether it was tom robinson i mentioned bill nelson and prague vec i did a new groups special right around the time the mod revival hit but as well as doing the chords and jeff's friends the team beats we also did uh, the homosexuals and shrink 
and I was a big fan of the fall and we interviewed the fall and we interviewed the selector. And so uh, for all that there was, there, there, there was and is that association. And I was, uh, and, and remain a massive jam fan. The, the thing about jamming is it was never confined to the mod revival. It was never confined to the fact that sure, I was a big Who fan who was very glad to have the jam in my life. I remember my best mate, Richard Hurd, coming around. It would have been after, probably after I left school. He used to come around my place a lot. And I think I was playing Killing Joke. And he, I remember him saying, God, you don't have to listen to some shit music. I mean, I, I love Killing Joke. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that was his taste, not mine. I was really proud of the fact that I was listening to all manner of weird weird music as well as that i was listening to my my new wave and my quote mod revival bands and my punk bands so going going back to when when i did my fanzine in 81 82 it was all cut and paste so you obviously went through because as soon as you start doing full color then that changes how you design so how did that change how how did you move up to full color in uh yeah, it was very, very gradual. It, it, if you actually trace through the issues, and I mean, the book shows this, you know, we go from black and white to having an extra color on the cover, to having like two extra colors on the cover, to Jolly pointing out that if I was cool with it, you know, when he was running off some badges in green, would I want to print a page in green? Because we could get it printed quicker that way. Yeah. Um, I'd be like, yeah, print that page in green. That's fine. And then sometimes I'd look and be like, oh, green's not a really good color, but anyway, live and learn. Uh, gradually, there was a period where Robin Richards, who was a designer, T-shirt designer, also did some, uh, some, some sleeve design. He started laying out the cover, designing the cover and doing some other pages. And he worked very much in a... Uh, a, a screen printer's mentality. So he would actually do up our different colors like he was screen printing, not, not like LIFO printing. So that was some of the naivety that came into it that was really effective. And then there was this point that we went, okay, let's jump and we're going to print in full color. And we could still cut and paste and we still did cut and paste. It was, we were now dealing with typesetting, but yeah. you could still cut and paste your typesetting. And indeed, you know, the typesetting would be there, the photos would be there, and the designer would be saying, look, unless you don't want any photos across three pages, you still need to cut out another two paragraphs. And somebody would get the scissors and go, well, sorry, these paragraphs are gone. It's all got to yeah. fit. So it's kind of like you formed a band in 78? Yeah, more or less. Yep, at school. At school. And I genuinely 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 viewed the band as what i was going to do i thought when i started jamming it it was just something to do and even though i quickly liked it and wanted to do more with it it was all part of being in music but i i mean from that first ever seeing somebody of merit on top of the pots that was what i thought was mapped out for me and what i wanted to do and so putting a band together at school was me and a drummer uh, there was a 12-year-old kid at school, 11, 12-year-old kid in my class who could drum really well. So I was like, okay, we got guitar and drums. It took about two years uh, until Jeff Carrigan said, you know, I'm thinking of getting a bass guitar. And I'm like, I, I know why you said that. Join our group. Join our group. And then we had a trio. And, um, you know, we took, a fair old, we took a fair old journey. We worked really, really, really hard on it. We, we played toilets and toilets and toilets and we went from recording demos where we didn't know what we were doing to demos where we really did know what we were doing and people actually paid some attention and we recorded a, eventually a couple of singles one with Weller producing another with um uh Dale Griffin and over and what's from what the hoople producing yeah And we got a long way in the kiss of death, funny enough, with signing to EMI. Um, I, it, it was everything I was probably against as an editor of Jamming about that, that idea. But we, we went and signed a small deal with a very, very big label. 
And after sitting on the shelf for six months, they put us in the studio with Ken Thomas, who went on to produce some marvelous music. But I think it was the era of Trevor Horn. We've moved. Yeah, this is I'm jumping way ahead, but just talking about yeah. the band. It was just um, that the, they signed us for six thousand pounds and spent thirty thousand pounds recording a single. That, I mean, it's, it, even now, that's an obscene sum of money. Can you imagine how obscene yeah. it looked on a royalty statement in 1984 or 85? Yeah. I think it was 84. I, ab- absolutely, uh, absolutely obscene. And it, it, they overproduced to the point of, like when, when the British would overcook food and you couldn't eat it, the record was overproduced to the point of you couldn't even listen to it. And um, so that was, uh, that, that was a long, long, long journey. And the, the nice thing about all of that, we became a five-piece in the end. And I became best friends with the guy I kind of brought into the band to sing my songs because I'm not a good singer. For another Tony, a guy called Tony Page. And we stayed best friends for decades now. And this past year, we finally just decided to record again together. And uh, we just released a couple of tracks as the Dear Boys. And, um, to, and it's going to be a seven-inch single, very limited edition. But by, by now, both songs are up on all the platforms, Bandcamp. Uh, as the artist plays all the streaming platforms. I've got to tell you, I, it's so much fun doing it again. It's so much fun. Yeah, yeah. It is fun creating music and, uh, you know, trying to do something really original. But you, you obviously, the, the label, was that done through, through Polydor? No, no, it was totally independent. It was distributed by Rough Trade and okay. Pin- Pinnacle. It was totally independent, yeah. So you, yeah. you, were you the first release on the label or was it Rudy? It was Rudy were first. It was Rudy and then a band called Zeitgeist who did this really cool, funky cover of Ball of Confusion. And it went Rudy, Zeitgeist, Rudy, Zeitgeist, and then Apocalypse. And then there was another Zeitgeist single. And then when the jam broke up, unfortunately, uh, whether the, uh, you know, just, he, he was just moving on with everything. He left Bruce and Rick behind and he left the label behind. And, uh, you know, I was sort of part of that, him casting off his previous, shedding off his previous baggage and, you know, starting afresh. And you, 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 you then with jamming, you did a, you, 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 you change your circulation so you can get into WH Smith's and, uh, 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 increased uh, full colour process printing uh, and glossy magazines. What year did that happen and how did that come about? It came about because Jamming had actually, to my shame, had become almost like an annual magazine because when I started running the label uh, and I was running out of the Jam's office, you know, the phone just rang all day and, uh, I mean, it was great fun. I was suddenly in the middle of the music business. I was, you know, I was the boy about town. I was just like running around, like having a, a wild time of it. This 17, 17 and then 18 year old kid just in the heart of the music business. Um, and there just was not time to put the fanzine together. It's one thing doing the interviews like we're doing now. It's another thing to sit down, edit them, trans- well, transcribe, transcribe them, them. Edit them, lay them out then go through the hassle of the printing, then the distribution. So after uh, we had these couple of issues with the, um, what I call the Paul McCartney issues, because I had this big two-parter Paul McCartney interview. And after Weller um, basically dropped me, dropped the label, just said, you know, I'm moving on. Uh, You know, we're all done. And I was like, okay, well, what do I do now? And I had so many people clamoring for jamming anyway that it was it made sense to come back stronger. So we did like one more issue with Robin Richards designing much of the interior. And then I went and took meetings with various distributors and it just felt like the right thing to do was to to step it up. It it felt like it needed to do something like that. In hindsight, I mean, did it have to go full color? Um and be bi-monthly. I think to get into Smith's, it did. And I think my ambition at the time was such, or my ego, whatever, was such that I did want jamming to compete. I thought we had something really good and I wanted to be able to sell it alongside Smash Hits. And um, I'm not sure that number one had started at that point. It might've just been Smash Hits in the face, but I wanted it to be alongside those magazines and I wanted it to connect. And I thought that 
I thought that we did need something that wasn't an inky, wasn't one of the weeklies, wasn't run by a big corporation that could actually reach. Uh, yeah, this might sound a little um, uh, far. I, I wanted to be able to connect with the kids in the various different towns. I mean, I think that's all. You know, that's all I'm really trying to say. It was the Thatcher era. A lot of people genuinely had no real hope, no, you know, no great prospects on employment. And I wanted our fanzine. I wanted somebody in any town that you can name. I don't want to name one and give it some kind of bad reputation, but they could go into the WH Smiths, stand a chance of seeing this music magazine and go, well, this looks like something different. And then realize it was being run by fans and that it was somewhere between amateur and professional and uh, that they might want to be a part of, part of the journey with us. Did did you then take on a, a a publisher to work or publishing company to work with you, or did you no, take on the not, cost yourself? No, initially I did not, and uh, I, so naivety is often yeah felt like it should be my middle name, but um, on paper I managed to make it look like a, a like everything was going to work out and make sense, and my mother uh, foolishly I would say. But that's a mother's love for you. Uh, agreed to sign off on a five thousand pound overdraft at the bank, and interest rates were like way in the double figures back then. It's ridiculous. There was something like sixteen or eighteen percent. So in no time, that five thousand was ten thousand, and then it was fifteen thousand. And the bank went, "Hang on, like we're closing this." And uh, at that point, I did go get uh, publishers. Did go get backers and um, managed to make it work for a couple more years. Uh, but the people who were publishers were also just a very, they were, it was weird. They were putting out very unrelated magazines, but uh, they, they took a gamble. and We worked well together for a couple of years. So when, what year was the last publication? Uh, December 85, and we closed in January 86. How many issues did you produce? 36. So you then, because you're in New York now, when did you first go over to America? Uh, not much later in 86. I, so jamming closed, and now I'm really getting a sense of, um, I look on back on this in funny ways, Raoul, because I never went to college. I didn't even do A-levels. And I, I sometimes look back and, and um I was pretty much penniless through much of this time, even, even when I had a period of, well, I was penniless for large periods of this time. I mean, I was, I was sort of not paying myself a wage from jamming. I, got, I, I did work with the tube for a while and that felt very glamorous. So I didn't even take money from jamming so that I could keep the, the, the accounts going. But the long and the short of what I'm getting at there is I never went to college and I got left with some debts from jamming. But I actually have ended up figuring that, well, that was my college education. That was my college years, was, was doing all of this stuff. And then by January 86, yeah, the label was long gone. I didn't have the magazine. I didn't have the band. And it was, uh, I guess, if you look at it that way now, it's like, okay, you've served your apprenticeship. You know, what are you going to go off and do in the real world? And I obviously was in the real world, but I guess, you know, how are you going to get work from other people? I started freelancing for music papers and I got uh, invited, sent on a junket to California with, by MCA Records back in the days when they did that. So almost the first thing I was doing for the NME was going out to California, which is just ridiculous. And I actually somehow managed to finagle a stopover in New York on the way back. And I actually was going via Boston, but from Boston, where I, I had friends I wanted to meet, I did a day trip to New York City and I just fell in love with New York City. Just like eight hours of whatever it was walking around the city. I was just, oh, my God, I've got to come back here. And the irony I always say about this is that I, growing up in London, which was tough enough, I always felt that New York City was going to eat me alive. And I did have problems being bullied at school. I mean, I think part of why I gravitated to music was I wasn't one of the big kids. I didn't fit in. I couldn't hold my own in a fight. And there was a lot of fighting in back, back in those days. Um, I always just assumed that New York City would just like, I'd, I'd get off the plane and I'd be mugged within 30 seconds. 
And instead, I found that New York City was actually the right place for me. And uh, everything I'd done in London was, in fact, like training for New York. It was like, now I was, now I was getting promoted. Now I was going up to the big leagues. And when I, I, I really worked at it between 86, and I guess eventually it was mid-88 that I bought a one-way ticket. And over those two years, I really kind of explored and worked at how I could get out to New York City. I'd go there occasionally. And I managed to get a lot of freelance work there. And I took some of my freelance work from the UK with me. But yeah, I just fell in love with the place. I mean, it was, it was violent. It was noisy. It was 24 hours. It was crazy. But it was ridiculously inexpensive. It felt cheaper than London. And it, and it felt so much more free than Great Britain. You know, punk was a reaction to a lot of the straight-laced and I would call it straight-jacketed British society, but that did not disappear in a heartbeat. And I would say it was only with the rave generation, you know, and, and DJs going to Ibiza and in coming back and bringing some of Europe back with them that Britain finally kind of modernized. And that was right around the time that I'd had enough and I went to New York because I felt in New York, you were just free to be who you wanted to be. And, and uh, the energy was just so palpable that I made, made the trip. And that's where your first novel and your only novel has come from, from hedonism? Yeah, yeah, from years where I... Um, uh, it's very loosely based around uh, time I spent DJing at the Limelight Club there, which was from 1990 to 93 with my roommate. We set up uh, what we initially set up as an alternative club night because there was no alternative night in... New York City, crazy as that may sound. And I was going to one out in New Jersey where I met my future wife. And at the time that we were both living in Manhattan, which tells you something that you'd have to go to New Jersey to, to be yeah. able to hear, like, just to be able to hear industrial dance music or the Wonder stuff or, or Echo and the Bunnymen or anything like that. Uh, and we ran, a, we ran a club night that became really quite successful. We put on a lot of really cool shows. We brought on a, over a lot of the techno acts. Uh, we brought over like Inspiral Carpets, Charlatans, uh, 808 State, a lot of Manchester in there. We had ourselves a great time and it was, that was also crazy. I mean, to me, that was the peak of, of New York craziness. And so I wanted to get that down on paper and, and some, of the, some of that madness down on paper. And I felt it wasn't right to try and tell any true stories. Uh, not, not least because, you know, there's some dislikable characters involved. And I didn't, yeah, you're not going to start writing about mafia characters in a, you know, I'm not going to start doing it in a memoir of some kind. So I, I, wrote, I wrote a novel about that period instead. I reread it not long ago. And uh, I, was, I, was, I, was, I was pleasantly surprised. It was actually... It's, it's really good. I remember having some problems with the ending. You know, fortunately, a lot of music biographies, you know the ending, like the band will break up or Keith Moon dies. But yeah. I had some problems getting to the ending. But I've got to say, up, up until the ending, I was like, man, you, you, you pulled this off. It's, I, I bought it when it first came out. It's been quite a few years since uh, I've yeah. read it. I think I probably have to do the same as you and revisit it, you know, it's, it's on some bookshelf somewhere. Right. So you, but you've also done nine biographies as well? Yeah, something like that. I think it's, you know, they, they merge a little bit. Um, I think in terms of big biographies, there's about five. And then there's a very little book I did on The Clash purely on their music. There's a, a co-write I did with Eddie Floyd. There's the jamming book and there's the memoir, Boy About Town. And so that's, oh, and then there's the anthology. I just, funny enough, I just um, posted about this on Facebook yesterday. The, the, the history of the New York City music scene I wrote, which yeah. all hopped up and ready to go, which wouldn't fall under biography. I guess it falls under music history. I guess if there's a, somewhere yeah. in the Dewey system for it, that's where it would fall. So bi biographies, I guess, Bunnyman, R.E.M., Keith Moon, the Smiths, Wilson Pickett, uh, the five actual straight up biographies. And then there's at least like about six more books beyond that. I've, I've had the Wilson Pickett, Pickett book for years and I, I, I haven't, I haven't read it. And I kind of like, oh, a lot of my friends have. So I, 
I kind of like, I know how it is, how good it is. It's just a case of you just find time, you, you know, you pick something up and then you get distracted with something else and then you get another book, you start reading that. How did you chose uh, Wilson Pickett to write your book about? Not dissimilarly from wanting to write about Keith Moon. It was somebody, uh, Pickett's music, I knew Pickett's music. Um, I, I, you know, these ideas hit you very, very, very rarely, but one, I knew that Pickett had been, you know, up there with Keith Moon as a, as a pretty wild guy, a wild and crazy guy, as Steve Martin might say. And one day I was just looking at my bookshelf and I was like, is there a book on Wilson Pickett? I was just sort of looking at my, my James Brown book and a couple of other things. And I did a quick check on Amazon and then I did a quick check on the library system. And I was like, well, from what I know about the guy, I mean, not everybody, uh, not everybody, you know, drives a car around the mayor's lawn at midnight and, you know, gets arrested for it. Uh, you know, not everybody's got this reputation or everybody could sing like him. So I, you know, made a point of listening to his albums as well as the singles and reading up on him. I'm like, I can't believe there hasn't been a book on this guy. It's, it's got to be done. And interestingly, it was a very, very, very hard sell. There was an initial round of pitching to publishers and there were no takers. And uh, a friend of mine, a very good friend who's a biographer said, well, did you pitch Oxford University Press? And I said, no, my agent said that, you know, they wouldn't be able to afford the time I would need to spend on the book. And she said, that's not true. They, they, they're giving out decent sized deals and you need to go back to your agent. And I did. And it pissed me off. No, no end. I had to like insist that my agent sent a copy to Oxford University. And when he did, they actually did a deal straight off for a decent sum of money. And then the agent gets 15% of it. And, uh, you know, that's just the business side of like, man, I could have been writing that book a year earlier if you had done that when I'd said, I literally, the book had been turned down. And after the best part of a year, I reread my proposal. I was like, no, this, this is, needs to come out. This is, the, it's not me who's wrong. And it, sometimes it is me who's wrong. I've had a couple of other ideas I cannot get people to buy into. But I was like, no, this, this has to be publishable and i went back at it and we ended up having a pretty successful book the, the one story that's that i remember like i said i haven't read the book but i've read little extracts or, or on online or with reviews was wilson forcing his 11 or not forcing getting his 11 12 year old son to stay up all night and do cocaine with him which yeah, seems pretty mad pretty mad you know what i mean yeah. it's just you know um, it it is it is he was a troubled he was a troubled character and yet i interviewed a lot of the people who played with him including the people who played on the road with him and it was on the road that he was he was trouble and just about every one of them said for all that he was <laughs> difficult to put it mildly being on stage with him was like career highlights that, that everybody said that when you when he stepped on that stage it was just unbelievable. It was like the best music they ever played, the best singer they worked with. He was just, yeah, I don't believe in God, but he's like one of those God's gifts. You're just like, how did you get born with that voice and those looks? And you're born in the backwoods of Alabama from a family, a cotton-picking family that's only a, barely a generation out of slavery. And, and you also have the ambition and determination and the knowledge that you can make it with what you've been given. Uh, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. It really I only think because Wilson had a lot of success in the 60s, whereas in the 70s, I, I, I would suggest that his albums and the early 80s didn't sell as well as his uh, 60s output. You yeah, know, no, that's still an amazing singer. Yeah, that's very, very true. And a lot of them, a lot of them got lost um, in the 70s. Uh, Atlantic abandoned most of its artists. Uh, it went for hard rock music. Um, you know, Atlantic Records, Armour Ertig and Jerry Wexler like to take enormous credit for their involvement with R&B and soul music, but they, they dropped it when, 
it stopped selling for them. Uh, right around the turn of the decade, Pickett actually had his biggest records, which was Wilson Pickett in Philadelphia, I think, and maybe the one after that. Um, it's interesting. They're records that would have hit more with the Soul Train crowd, which would have been you know, your African-American audience, whereas I think us white rock kids, you know, we're all about In the Midnight Hour and Land of a Thousand Dances and maybe Hey Jude. But he had, he had like... Um, some of his biggest records were came after that. And, um, and then a lot of them got lost. He actually left Atlantic and went to RCA and made bad records. And, you know, that's on him and it's on the label. And it's hard to come back from a series of bad records. And one thing I liked about the Pickett story was uh, about a, uh, not too long before he died, I mean, maybe only a couple of years, he got to release a really good album. Uh, a guy called John Tivin, who's made a specialty out of kind of rescuing these ailing R&B soul musicians. He managed to get a great album out of Pickett. It got a Grammy nomination, which he really wanted. It was the one thing he wanted in life. And he got to tour again. And he didn't ever completely clean up his act, but I think he came off the drugs. And uh, he had a good year on the road. And I think it's, it's, it's nice, a story that had like this incredible rise and then a long sort of steep decline didn't bottom out entirely. It came back up again at the end. So you're, 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 you've got Apocalypse or a version of Apocalypse uh, coming back out, but you're also involved in a kind of like a kind of like a school for budding musicians or artists. Yeah. Can you yeah. tell us a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely, because it's become really quite a big part of my life these last few years. It's become my um, my kind of community. There, We have a uh, rock academy up here around Woodstock, because I'm not in New York City anymore. I live up by the Catskill Mountains, so I'm about two hours out of New York City, right where... Um, right where the Catskill Mountains start and the village of Woodstock is. And it's the, the, the Rock Academy was actually started by Paul Green, who was the model, the influence for Jack Black in School of Rock. It was based on Paul Green. Um, my own son became a part of it. And it's a place where 8 to 18-year-olds can go and it's called an academy which is really the wrong name because that makes it sound like you have to take exams to get in there we we take on eight-year-old kids who've never played a note of music and what we do is we put on about four different tribute shows or five a season and over the course of 10 rehearsals a cast of anywhere from about 15 to 25 kids will wrote will play a set of usually about 22 to 24 songs about a good two hours worth um they rotate in and out as cast members you know so um the new kids only get given four songs initially the more experienced ones might might find themselves on half the set and uh, you know they'll play different instruments and they're all like they they just the the majority of kids who sign up for this just love it and next you know they're taking lessons on another instrument and they're signing up for two shows a season and um I've ended up being one of the show directors. So what I do is I take this group of, uh, of kids and, you know, I have to turn what they come in with and the music that we've got into a concert. Now they're getting lessons. Most of them, they're meant to be able to come in and know their parts, but the half of them won't. I mean, they will show up and be like, well, I didn't know what my part was or, um, or I haven't learned it yet. Or, you know, they'll have learned maybe the chords, but they need to play some lead guitar work. And similarly on, on um you know on keyboards and then you as you get close to the showtime you just start throwing kids in on backing vocals and percussion and we put on some amazing amazing shows and they run an entire range my last two shows i went from an 80s new wave show which was great fun because we had a bunch of songs that didn't even have guitars or acoustic drums and i gravitated from that straight uh, uh straight into Jimi hendrix you know, and suddenly I had a show without keyboards and it was all like loud, loud guitars. And right now I'm doing a, a, a Cure show, which is, I've got to say, is enormous, enormous fun. I, I am rediscovering the music of The Cure and loving how it's put together. And as somebody who's a music biographer who's written a lot about how music is composed and performed and produced, this really works 
for me because I'm never, I've never claimed to be the best musician on any particular instrument, but I can play different instruments and I can hear the songs for the most part. Every now and then a kid will catch me by surprise. I mean, I got caught out. I got caught out the other day. I thought the, the part at the end of one song was on guitar and I'm looking to the guitar player and he's like, no, it's a, it's a bass. It's octaves on the bass. And I went, listened again and it's like oh you're right okay bass player you should be playing that but sometimes they know yeah. they're really really keen it's enormous fun we put on two concerts at the end of it for the um, the public are invited a lot of it's friends and family but but anybody can go and um we do have some musicians kids in there you know the area that we live in means that occasionally you're working with somebody and you find out down the line that their dad's kind of or mum or mum is quite well known um but a lot of them are just like absolute beginners and it's it's just become a sort of community for me i love it so the 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 the, the other thing that we've got in connection but you're way ahead of me is uh we're both vegans mm. and uh, mine i would say comes from uh, a health aspect and i think that uh, eating healthier food is uh, the route to uh, having energy and uh, and and a, a good life? When when did you start to look at your your eat patterns and uh, your, your diet? So for me, it was there. There were a couple of different things right around the uh, mid eighties, <clears throat> and uh, again, it was a time of like very um, polarized politics in Britain with with as Thatcher kind of thrived on, you know, she thrived on, uh, on that kind of polarization. So over on the left, there was a lot of anarchy and, you know, anarchy and peace with the crass set and a lot of vegetarianism around that. And I'd grown up in a real heavy meat eating family and I'd always loved it and just didn't think I would ever have it in me to be a vegetarian. I just sort of thought based on some of the people I saw around rough trade, and maybe even at Crass HQ, that if I turned vegetarian, I'd suddenly start wearing like sweaters with holes in them, you know, jumpers with holes in them and, uh, yeah. and uh, stop, stop liking football. And I went on a ski holiday, a really, really mad ski holiday where these motorbike messengers booked us as a school party. They booked 30 of us. I mean, it was trouble from beginning to end, but good trouble. And one of those guys was a vegetarian. He was like a fireboat man on the River Thames. And he was on sort of like hunger strike for half the trip because they wouldn't serve him vegetarian food. And he was as mad as anyone. I thought, well, there's, there's my proof there. And then the Smiths came out with Meet His Murder. And I was a big Smiths fan. I just sort of thought, well, I've got, I was coming to it from at that point from the animal perspective, but I've got to, I've got to give this a try. And I did. And I think that what I, what I, you know, I, I maintain that veganism in particular, if you can make that leap where there's no a dairy product either, it forms this perfect triangle that you don't often get in life. It's for your own health. And there's no doubt about the health benefits. You, the, the, I mean, we don't even have to go there. It's just proven. Uh, just, you know, eat all the right foods. Don't just eat potato chips. You know, eat a balanced diet and a vegan diet will do wonders for you. Morally... I don't see why uh, humans should be um, eating animals and slaughtering animals and raising animals in factory farm conditions. There's no need for it. We don't need to. Our bodies don't crave it. Our bodies don't need it. We're not designed for it. And that brings us into the third reason, which is just as important as the other two, which is the environment. We are destroying the environment with our factory farming, with our cattle grazing, with, with knocking down rainforests to graze cattle. Um, None of that is needed. And we could feed everybody on the planet so easily if we weren't obsessed with feeding our, you know, our, our farming production to, to grazing animals that we then slaughter in pain and eat them, pumped with, by, you know, pumped with weird hormonal drugs. Um, just no need. And we're, you know, we're destroying the planet. It's awful. And we're cruel to other animals in a way that it's not like just a lion tearing down an antelope. It's not like that. We're doing it in a very methodical, industrial way. And ultimately, we're healthier for not, not eating those foods. So why, why would you not do it? And I'm, I'm also, I wasn't at the time. I, was, um, I, I didn't really become a runner until after I became a, 
a parent. And so that's not until my very, very late 30s. But within, the, um, within a lot of the sports community, there's a lot more vegetarian, vegetarians and vegans than you might think. And some of the best athletes in the world are vegan. You know, the world's strongest man is vegan. There's a film about him to prove as much. And, you know, some of the top ultra runners in the world are vegan. And, you know, I, I, can, I can do that stuff and I can do it on my diet. So um, I, it's, the own, it's the one bandwagon in the world that I want everybody to be part of. I will never complain that somebody is jumping on the bandwagon. Just come be a part of it. The more the merrier. When uh, I, 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 about 10 weeks ago, I decided, right, that's it. I'm not eating any more processed foods. It's, uh, you know, I've been vegan since uh, the middle of October, 100%. I'd, I'd toyed with the idea before then, but something would creep back in. And uh, the past 10 weeks, all I'm really eating at the moment is that I'll have some porridge with some fruit in the morning with some nuts, seeds, and then I'm eating about 4 o'clock and I'm eating one of my, my vegan burgers or one of my, my vegan uh, mushroom sausage types or I'll have a, a sweet potato with yep. a bit of salad yep. and I've got more energy yep. for me in that than I've got for me in three bowls of stodge that I'd grown up eating for you know the majority of my life absolutely absolutely there's just no there's no denying it uh, if you can get the right foods and the processed food thing is important there's you know there are good brands out there and there are brands that sort of you know they'll show up in the gas stations and you're kind of yeah petrol stations sorry and you'll think uh yeah where did um yeah where did that come from it's not coming from the local farmer's market but uh you know i think i always just get a bit of a the shivers when i go to i'm, I'm lucky i've got a supermarket right down the road that when i walk in it's got this whole kind of organic fresh vegan area and i can do most of my shopping there um and now I just have to you know, scoot around for some you know, canned vegetables and a few other things. And when, but when I get to um, the, the checkout, the cashier, you know, it's often I just see what other people are buying and this awful meat that they're buying, the cheap meat. And, and then I'm looking at those people and I'm not trying to be judgmental. I don't say anything to anyone, but I'm like, you're not eating well and it shows. And it's such a shame because on this other part of the, the store, is this great food? I'm not, you know, you might find it more expensive and maybe that's the problem, but the fresh vegetables aren't more expensive and they're really easy to cook. Steaming vegetables is one of the easiest things you could possibly do. It's yeah. as e almost as easy as using a microwave. So I'm, I'm with you. I think, uh, you know, we've got to be careful of processed foods as much as, you know, it's good to, um, to toot the vegan horn. I think, you know, eating naturally is as much as possible is very yeah. important. As See, much the as big, possible. The big thing for me in in October of last year was discovering that I was gluten intolerant. Five weeks later, in the, the, the towards the end of November, a, a specialist confirmed that I was allergic to flour. Oh, you know, okay. and then and then then you you then realise that that's it, it. Then becomes a struggle with eating foods that are processed because you don't yeah. know what's in them. You know, and, right. it, and that's why 10 weeks ago when I went, that's it, I'm only cooking foods that I've cooked. Yeah. I'm only eating foods that I've cooked, you know, and I'm, I, I'm then in, in control of what I'm eating. Yeah. And uh, my health is, you know, just uh, so much on top. And normally at this stage I'd be out running, but because I've got so much energy, I haven't gone on to that running level yet, but I, I know that I will do at, at some right. point. Right, good you know. for you. Good. Thank, thank you, Tony Fletcher, for your time. Oh, you are welcome. This has been fun. It's always, it's always nice doing this, and you know, especially because I live overseas, and I can't just meet people in the pub, and we don't tend to do that so much anyway these days. And COVID sort of made us all like stay at home. So I enjoy doing these. They keep me very much like, yeah, social and talking and in contact with people. So it's good. Good luck with it. Thank you. Thanks for having me.